It's Genesis chapter 25, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number 19. So if you've not found your place, you catch up with us when you get there. The Bible says, And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. After that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised. His birthright. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for this day, and I thank You for this wonderful group of people that have gathered to worship You. Now, Lord, help us to submit our hearts this morning. Lord, I want to ask You this morning to use me as a vessel for Your glory and honor. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have liberty in our service. Lord, that hearts and lives would worship You today. Father, that if there's any area of our life that needs to be surrendered to You, that You'd point upon it. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone without Christ, show them their need. Lord, I pray they'd come to know You before it's everlasting too late. I love You, Lord. Not like I ought to, but Lord, I do love You. Now help us, Lord, to love You more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us are very familiar with this passage. We may have never taken the time to read it for ourselves in our own private time, but as a young person, most of us are taught the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers that were very, very different. Uh, They were twins, and the actions and lives of these two young men guided nations and affected eternity. And as I read this passage, I want to preach to you on a simple thought this morning, and I could sum it up thus, He got what he wanted, but he lost what he had. 
you to notice a few things out of our passage this morning. Uh, to give you a synopsis of the story, it chronicles for us the birth and the difference between these two young men. That Esau was a man of the field. He was kind of a man's man as we might see it. And uh, he was a hunter. And he had great favor with his father Isaac. Esau was the elder son. But also because he would bring him venison. Now tell me Isaac isn't a man right there. Amen. Uh, any fellow that would love the son that brings him more red meat, that says something about him. Amen. But uh, Isaac loved Esau greatly. But now Rebekah, uh, Isaac and Esau's mother, loved Jacob in a greater way. The Bible describes Jacob as being a plain man that dwelt within tents. In other words, we might say that he was still tied to mama's apron strings. He was what we might call a mama's boy. You ever heard that term before? The Bible teaches that because Esau was the eldest, that he was due the birthright. And I'm going to say a word about that here in just a moment. But it tells us about the time that Esau comes in from the field and he's weary and faint. And for a moment of pleasure, he sells away the blessing that was rightly his. Do you know that you and I, brethren, God's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places? I mean, listen, if we just sat here and talked about all the good things God's done for us, we'd never get out of here. I really think, and I think we ought to praise Him all the time, but I think that's why eternity is eternal. I think if we're going to praise Him, we're never going to run out of things to say about Him. And He's given us so much in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been doing a series, and we finished it up two weeks ago, on who we are in the person of Jesus Christ. And it astounds me to see all that God has done for us. I mean, when we were like that little sheep that was sung about in the song, lost and astray, wandering in the desert, nary a chance of getting home, the Bible teaches that Christ walked the rugged road to Calvary and died for you and I. Now that's something, isn't it? I mean, that's a Savior right there. That's not just a God. That's a Savior. It's one thing to say He's God, and certainly He is God. But, oh, neighbor, it's another thing to say He's Savior. He condescended into this world to die a sinner's death for you and I. Not only did He either do that, but He bestowed the Holy Spirit into this world to convict the sinner, to show him his need of Calvary. What a blessed thought that when we were lost and had no way of finding our way back, God sent someone to show us, someone to point the way, someone to show us our need and to show us our fault and to show us our death. And that's what the Holy Spirit of God does. He speaks to our hearts. Not only did He do that, but He saved us by His grace, not by our works. Hey, wouldn't it be uh, terrible if it was by works? Wouldn't it be awful to live your life always wondering if you were good enough to get to heaven? Wouldn't that be a terrible existence? Isn't it a blessing to know that my salvation has nothing to do with me? Isn't it a blessing to know that our salvation is not about us? You may mess up, friend. You may mess up day after day after day. And if you live like I do, you probably do mess up every single day. But I'm thankful that salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. And on and on and on we could go about the things that are given to us. But do you know that all these things took place at the point of our second birth? Preacher, what is the second birth? That's when we got born again by the Spirit of God. When we accepted Jesus Christ into our hearts and lives and we were birthed into the family of God. The Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. The book of John says, uh, But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. And so in a sense, well, I wouldn't just say in a sense, I would say most definitely if you've been saved, you're part of the family of God. You're within the family of God. God is 
your father and Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense is your brother. What a blessing. What a thought. But do you know that when we got born again, these things were given to us as somewhat of a birthright. Something given to us as a product of our being born into the family of God. And I got to thinking about this birthright. And I just want to say a few things before we get into the message about what a birthright meant in the Old Testament. The birthright was to be given to the eldest son. We see that several times in the Word of God, but one of the plainest is in the life of Reuben. His uh, birthright was taken away from him and given to Joseph's sons, but it should have gone or could have gone to Reuben. Whoever was the eldest and the firstborn was given the birthright. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, it even makes provision that if a man had two wives and one of his wives he loved and the other one he despised, that, uh, that he could not surpass the right of the eldest son, even if he was of that wife that was despised, and give the birthright to the uh, next oldest that belonged to the one that was beloved of him. He could not surpass that. Uh, he had a duty to give that to the eldest son. But what does that mean? What does it mean to you and me? I want to give you three things the birthright means. First off, the birthright means prosperity. The Bible teaches that a double portion was given to the eldest son. If you had 12 sons, the inheritance would not be split into 12, but into 13. The eldest son would get two parts, and the remainder 11 would be distributed through the rest of the sons. It meant that they got a double blessing. Can I say that God has always met my needs? Isn't it a remarkable thing, though? God has not just met my needs. Do you know every once in a while God meets my wants as well? I mean, there's some things God has given me in my life that I don't need to live. I look at the house that I've got, and it's probably not the biggest one in the room, and it's probably not the nicest one, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, got, it's got three bedrooms. You know, there's only two of us. And at this point, we're still sleeping in the same bedroom. Amen? I don't, I don't need two, two uh, extra bedrooms, but God's blessed us with it. Uh, you know, I've got a big old backyard. I, I don't know if God was blessing me with land or cursing me with more to mow. Amen? But I don't need that much. But God's given me some things in my life that I want. And could I say that if we, we, we might even say that God's blessed us with a double portion in our lives. It meant a double portion. It meant prosperity. But could I say that not only that, it meant prominence. You see, the eldest son would take over the role after the parents died and uh, leading the family. And he would be seen with an authority and with respect and with a responsibility. Do you know when you got born again, you became somebody? You're still nobody, relative speaking, but you're really nobody before you got saved. Just a lost, dead dog on their way to hell. Do you know when you got born again, you became part of the family of God? I mean, you were put in a particular place. But you know, in a sense, the prominence that was uh, spoken of here in Esau's case had something else to go along with it. Let me use a big word, and it may not be real familiar to you. I had to look it up. I ain't going to lie to you. Amen. But could I use the term progenitorship? You say, what does that mean? It means that Esau would have been the patriarchal leader of the messianic line. It could have been from Esau instead of from Jacob. Jacob was the one from whom the Messiah came. Now you say, oh, but preacher, the, the Bible says in four days. Oh, I know that, but in a practical sense, if it had been Esau that had kept the birthright, it would have been Esau's family line. And could I say that in, in their situation, the prominence meant a particular relationship to the Savior. Isn't that a blessed thought? Do you know when you got born again, you've got a relationship with Jesus Christ now. I mean, you can fellowship with Him. We probably don't take advantage of it like we ought to, friend. 
But we can fellowship with Him. What did the old songwriter say? He walks with me. He talks with me. He tells me that I am His own. We walk and talk with Jesus Christ. We have a relationship and fellowship with Him. Do you know that's part of the spiritual birthright that we're given, being born into the family of God? The Bible says in the book of 1 John chapter 1 that uh, we have fellowship with Him. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son through His blood. I mean, we can speak to God. We can speak to our Savior. That's a beautiful relationship. Let me give you a third thing that the birthright meant. It meant a priesthood. In the Old Testament, typically the oldest male in the family before the setting up of the uh, Aaronic priesthood, not Aaronic, Aaronic priesthood, uh, the oldest male would have been the priest in the family. And so whoever had the prominence and authority in the family would have acted as the priest in their family. Do you know that the Bible tells you and I that we're part of a royal priesthood? I mean, we get to go in and commune and speak with God. I realize that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. I realize that He ever liveth to make intercession for us and that He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But I'm merely saying this. The priest had access to God. You and I, brother, we've got access to God. So a birthright meant several things in a family. Why was it that Esau was so willing to sell it away? Do you know that you and I give up much of what God has blessed us with for moments of sin and pleasure? Just a moment of satisfaction. Just a moment of doing the wrong thing. And there's many spiritual blessings God puts in our lives that we forfeit. I, I see a few things in this passage. I just want to give them to you quickly. I want you to notice, first off, the condition of Esau. Do you know that sin is one of those things, nobody just falls headlong into sin at once. Something's been going on in their life and heart before that ever happens. I promise you, friend, you can go down the line and you've probably known people in your life that you thought were good Christians and come out to find uh, one day that they had been stepping out on their spouse. That didn't happen in a moment. Something had been going on in their life. You may have known somebody that you thought was a really good Christian. I mean, they loved the Lord. They were faithful. They served God. And then one day they walk out the double doors and they never come back in. And you go to them, they're not in church, they're not serving God, and you say, what happened to that person? You may have not seen it, but something was going on in their life. There was a condition that predicated that situation. I want you to notice three things I see. The Bible tells the story that Esau had been out hunting. But look what it says in verse number 29. There's a little phrase that's used. The Bible says, and Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field. Now you say, well, that's not really interesting to me, preacher. Of course he came from the field. He ain't going to be hunting inside the tent. So of course he came from the field. But I want you to remember with me, beloved, that the field, many times the Word of God, pictures the world for us. In fact, if you'll read concerning the life of Isaac, whenever Rebekah, uh, Eliezer, was sent out to bring Rebekah, to bring Isaac's bride to him, uh, that whenever uh, uh, Rebekah came to him, that Isaac met her in the field. He didn't wait till she got to the house. He didn't ask her to come all the way to the house. He met her halfway. You know, the Bible, teach, the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming for His own. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is coming for you and I. We don't have to make our way to heaven. I mean, if you die in Christ, He'll take you on home. But for those of us that are alive when He comes, we don't have to pedal our way there. Amen. He's coming for us. 
In the field, time and time again, we could give various examples about the field uh, in the New Testament, the sower and the seed. It was a picture uh, at times of the word of, or of uh, the field and the seed was the word of God. But what I want you to gain from this is this. The reason that Esau was weary is because he was spending time in the field. You know where it all begins? It all begins with worldliness. Oh, preacher, you preach this message a thousand times. I know, and it's still the pitfall of the vast majority of Christians. Worldliness. We teach our young people that they need to be faithful to Jesus Christ. But what do they think when they see us dabbling in the world? The Bible says that we are not to love the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And even you stronger language, uh, James said that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, the world is the enemy of God. When we partake and cast our lot in the world, we're effectually making ourselves, setting ourselves at odd with the Lord. I promise you, friend, you spend time in the world and the things of the world. You say, preacher, what do you mean? If you spend time uh, with those that don't love Jesus Christ, you say, well, I've got to reach them. Yeah, you've got to reach them, but you don't have to become them to reach them. Isn't that right? You don't have to become them to reach them. What are you reaching them to if you have to become them to reach them? You're not reaching them with anything. You're showing them that their lifestyle is acceptable. When you spend time, when you uh, go out and partake in various sins and live in the world, hey, and live your life to please the world, it's no wonder when times of temptation come to us that we struggle with trying to keep from sinning. Esau had been in the world. He had been in the field. Uh, but the Bible uses another word. Uh, Esau made this statement, say, uh, said, I am faint. I am faint. Not only was Esau worldly, but he was weary. Do you know the devil always picks our moments of weakness? The devil always picks our moments of weakness. The Bible says of the devil that he was more subtle than any beast of the field. He's a deceiver, the Bible calls us. And we're not, uh, calls him, and we're not to be ignorant of his devices. Let me just say this. You know the devil's a lot smarter than we give him credit for. He really is. You say, oh, you shouldn't say that about the devil. Oh, but it's true, friend. That's why we're to be sober and to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. Walks about. What does he do? Listen, seeking whom he may devour. The devil's paying attention to your life, just like God is. And he's looking for opportunities. And that moment, you say, where'd that weariness came from? It came from his time spent in the world. Worldly Christians are weak Christians. We've never lived in a day of such weak and anemic Christianity. I mean, most people say, oh, and, and, and if the Lord gives me liberty tonight, I'm going to be preaching on the persecuted church. And most of us say, oh, preacher, it's just so tough. Hey, listen, neighbor, if we're not even living for Jesus Christ, why would we expect persecution? Why would we expect it? You get people that say, oh, well, you know, the devil's just been after me. He's not after you unless you're a threat. I think a lot of the times when we attribute it to Satan, it's just our own failure. We say, oh, you know, it's just so tough being a Christian. Yeah, if you really live like a Christian, it is tough being a Christian. Uh, but there's people, friend, that, uh, that, uh, that don't do anything. They don't read their Bible. They don't pray. They don't tithe. They don't do anything for the Lord. And then they say, well, you know, it's just tough being a Christian. It ought not be tough on you. The devil probably not bothering you. Amen? I mean, the fact of the matter is the devil looks for those points of weakness. And particularly in strong Christians, he tries to find a place of weakness. I want you to notice the third thing. Esau was wanting. The devil knows what our desires are. You know, there are certain things that don't appeal to me. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. 
There are certain sins I've never struggled with. And there's other people that do struggle with them. I've, I've never struggled with the sin of murder. Well, there's been a few times on the interstate, but typically... <laughs> I've never struggled with murder. I mean, I, I, I've, never, I've never just had to really fight myself back to keep from killing a man. So you know the devil don't tempt me with that. Typically in my life, I, alcohol has never really been a problem for me. It just never has. One in the home growing up, and, and it's just never really been a, a struggle for me. And so the devil doesn't tempt me with that. But there are things the devil does tempt me with. You say, what are those? I say, mind your own business. <laughs> Sure, there's things the devil tempts. You know, he tempts me with the things that appeal to me. He knows our desires. And he came to Esau when Esau wanted something. When Esau wasn't satisfied. And listen to me. I'm about to make a statement that I really want us all to soak in. When we get dissatisfied with Jesus Christ, that's when we're on the road to destruction. You may get dissatisfied with your family, your church family, with any number of things. But when we get dissatisfied with Jesus Christ, that's when we're on the road to destruction. That's when we're headed on a downward spiral. You better understand that Jesus Christ can meet your every need. And He'll probably even meet some of your wants. But when you get to the place that what you want is contrary to Him, you're on the road to destruction. I'll tell you why a lot of Christians are not satisfied in this day that we live in. They've been in the world and they want the things of the world. So they're not satisfied with Jesus Christ because He's not going to give them the things of the world. When you get alone with God and get your life right with Him, you'll find He's all you need. He'll satisfy your every want, your every desire. He'll be all to you that you need. The reason people get dissatisfied is they get an appetite for the things of the world. Esau had been out in the field, he'd been out in the world, and he was weary and he was wanting something. But I want to draw our focus on Jacob for just a split second. You know, I realize that Jacob had a good desire here. And I would say that Jacob even had in some ways a scripturally mandated desire. The Bible gives the prophecy when they were born that the elder would serve the younger. But, you know, as is typical with Jacob, Jacob does the best thing in the worst possible way. And, you know, when we think about the temptation to sin, and certainly it was a sin for Esau to sell his birthright, it was a sin for him. I would say that in many ways, Jacob was the tempter that facilitated Esau's sin. And I think in a limited way, we could say that that Jacob almost represents Satan in this passage. Do you know that Jacob's name means supplanter and deceiver? And Jacob was a cunning man. In fact, let's look at a few things about the cunning of Jacob. I want you to notice, first off, that Jacob was prepared for Esau. The Bible says that Jacob sawed pottage. It does not say that Jacob saw Esau coming and sawed pottage. But Jacob already had something cooking. Can I say to you that the devil always has something cooking? The devil always has something ready for you. I mean, there's never a time in your life when you're going to find that Satan will not be willing to tempt you. If you're looking for him, he will find you. If you're looking for sin, it will find you. The devil's always preparing something. He prepared for him. But I want you to notice, secondly, he propositioned him. You say, oh, but preacher, it was Esau that came to him. Yeah, Esau came to him with his desire, but Jacob answered with a demand. Esau came and he said, why don't you give me some of that pottage that you have? Why don't you give me some of that food? And you know, Jacob, he could have given him something for nothing. But I found in my life that the devil never gives a man something for nothing. Always costs. doesn't matter what it is. You say, oh, preacher.
preacher, it's just a little sin and it has big consequences. Uh, Let me make a blanket statement here. The vast majority of the consequences for our sin, most of us are too carnal to ever realize. Most of us are too carnal to ever recognize the spiritual impact that even a small sin carries in our lives. And that's why we commit them. You see, it wasn't a big thing for Esau to sell his uh, birthright. It's kind of like the old fellow that sold his soul to the devil said, well, I wasn't using it. (laughs) Esau says, didn't do me no good. So I sold it away. But Jacob said, you want this, you're going to give something for it. You're going to give something for it. I I think it's interesting that he propositioned him up front and was open about it because the devil usually isn't that way, is he? Look at the prodigal son. He got what he wanted. But he lost what he had. The prodigal son, he left daddy's home, daddy's house. He got the money that he was asking for. And he got the freedom and he got the liberty that he wanted. He just didn't reckon on a pigsty. He didn't reckon on hitting rock bottom. He didn't reckon on losing all of his friends and all of his money and anybody that cared for him in his life. Hey, listen, sin always costs you more than you reckon on paying. Always. You find me one, neighbor. You can go up and down the streets of, uh, of, of tough neighborhoods in this city. You can talk to the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the uh, addicts. And you can ask them this. Did you ever see your life get into this place? I, I, I don't know of a single addict that ever anticipated their life going to shambles. They didn't plan on that. You know what they planned on? They planned on a moment of pleasure. Just a moment. Just a moment. I don't know of a single drunk that anticipated being a drunk. I just wanted a moment of pleasure. I don't know of a single AIDS victim that anticipated having AIDS. They just wanted a moment of pleasure. Just a moment. But sin's always going to cost you more than you want to pay. The devil won't give anybody anything for nothing. It'll cost you something in your life. And it may take you years to realize what it costs you. There's some friends that have with their families... Raise them in the things of the world, and it's taken them years to see the impact that it's caused. But you mark her down. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. It's an absolutely unalienable fact. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. I want you to notice a third thing. Not only did he prepare for him and proposition him, but I want you to notice that he pacified him. Look with me in the text down at verse number 34. The Bible says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. You say, Preacher, are you saying he satisfied him? No, I'm saying he pacified him. Some of you have little ones. I've got one on the way. And uh, when you've raised your kids, you know there's a difference between a bottle and a pacifier. The bottle satisfies. A pacifier, it just pacifies. All it does is band-aid their attitude and their disposition. It doesn't give them anything. It doesn't provide anything for them. It doesn't help them in any way. All it does is keep them quiet. The Bible teaches that Esau, he ate his bread, he ate his lentils, and he went his way. Let me ask you something. How long do you think it was before he's hungry again? How long do you think it was before he's hungry again? Go ahead and partake in sin. How long do you think it will be before you want more? Sin never satisfies. Ever. 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 You find me one person in the Word of God or in human history that was ultimately satisfied by sin. I mean, neighbor, I'm not just saying sin will send you to hell. I'm saying it won't even satisfy you. 
It won't even make you happy. It won't even give you joy. Oh, it may for a split second. The book of Hebrews says, chapter 11, verse 25, about Moses, that uh, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Just a season. Just a moment. It may feel good for a moment. And, and it could be any number of sins. Hey, that lie may get you out of trouble for a little while. But mark her down, there'll come a time you'll answer for it. That, listen, whatever fleshly lust you may be uh, pacifying at the moment, uh, you may be happy at that moment. It won't be long before you'll want more. It won't be long before you'll want it more and more and more and more. That's how an addict works, you know. They don't start off and they say some of these drugs build intolerances in people's systems. And before long, they're taking more and more and more and more. You know, that's how sin works. There's some of us that there's things in our life that ten years ago we would have never let in our lives. There's some of us, there's things in our life. Hey, listen, there's some of us, there's movies and music and uh, things on our computers and things in our homes and some of our habits and the things that we do that five, ten years ago we would have been appalled by. But it just happened little bit by little bit by little bit. We never counted on it going that way. But you see, those things only pacified us for a little while. There came a time we wanted more. I want you to notice a third thing, and I'm going to hush. Notice the carnality of Esau. Why ultimately did he make this decision? Not just the conditions surrounding him, but why ultimately did he make this decision? Well, I'd say a few things. I'd say first off, it was because he was fleshly. And there's something interesting as you read this passage. In fact, look at verse 30. The Bible says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. For I am faint, therefore was his name called Edom. Now you say, I don't understand why they called him Edom. The name Edom means red. Now this is the thing that's interesting to me. We've got a, uh, a young man, we've got Kristen's husband, we call him Red. Why, why do you reckon we do that? It, probably because of his red hair, right? I mean, that's why we call him Red. And you may have known somebody growing up that had, had red hair, and you, you called him Red. You identified him by that. Esau, the Bible says, was red and hairy all over, but they didn't call him Red yet. He was by nature Red. But his nature was not what identified him. It was his actions. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. You're born into sin. But by grace, you can be born again. But you will become what you eat. As he ate this red lentil soup, they began to say, that's old red right there. His appetite defined his identity. You don't have to be fleshly and sinful. You was born into sin. You have a sin nature. But you don't have to submit to that sin nature. But we see about Esau, he did. And from that time forth, it defined him. Hey, you go through the Word of God, you won't find anybody called Esauites. You know that? You won't find it anywhere, Ralph. Nobody called Esauites. But the descendants of Esau, what were they called? They were called Edomites. His fleshliness didn't just define him. It defined generations. And some of us that have lived in sin and lived in the flesh, our sinfulness is defining generations. He was fleshly. No, second thing, he was faithless. He said, I am about to die. Well, I don't know about that. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or uh, chapter uh, number 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to what it says. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
But God is faithful who will suffer you to not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Esau said, there's no way I can live and not have this pottage. You know, I've heard that cry. I mean, listen, when you're a youth pastor, you'd be amazed what you hear. And when I was a youth pastor, I'd hear, I'd hear, I'd hear little girls and they'd say, Oh, preacher, I just can't live without him. I just can't live without him. And you'd hear young men and they'd say, Oh, preacher, I just can't live without her. I'll just die if I don't have her in my life. But do you know that there's some grown adults, neighbor, there's certain sins in their life. They may not say it out loud, but they'd say, I could never live without that. Too big of a crutch in my life. I need it too much. Hey, listen, God doesn't ever put you in a situation where you have to sin. Never. If you've got sin in your life, it's of your own choosing. The same is true in my life. The sin that may be in my life is of my own choosing. God didn't force me to sin. He didn't put me in a situation where sin was the only answer. He said, I'm going to die. He didn't believe that God could deliver him. Let me give you a final thing. He said, what profit shall this birthright be to me? He was foolish. Let me tell you the real reason that we give up our spiritual blessings for a moment of pleasure. is because we count them cheap. They don't mean anything to us. He says right after that, thus Esau despised his birthright. Despised it. He had a hatred for it. You know what that means? That means he considered it to be a worthless thing. Some of us, the reason we sin is because we're not spending time in the prayer closet anyway, so we don't care if our prayer life is hindered. It's okay if I preach straight to you this morning. I mean, we're supposed to be old-timey. We're supposed to be, I mean, you know, I, that, that's why I'm here is to preach the Word of God to you. And I'm just being honest with you this morning. Some of us, we don't care if sin affects our prayer life because we're not praying anyway. We don't care if we lose the power of God to witness to people because we're not witnessing anyway. We don't care if God's Word becomes a closed book to us because we're not reading it anyway. We don't care if church becomes a burden to us because we're not going anyway. It doesn't, it doesn't bother us. It doesn't bother us. We have despised the spiritual blessings that God has bestowed upon us. So we sell it. And most of the time we sell it cheap too. And it's something that a double portion of Isaac's inheritance was worth nothing more than a bowl of soup to him. Sold it cheap. Sold it cheap. Most of us, we're not given into sin so we can become great and powerful and prominent. We're given into sin for just that moment of pleasure. That ought to tell us something about how little we value what God has done for us. I mean, anything is valued. Listen, what? why is it diamonds are worth so much? They're worthless, Ralph. I mean, they're worthless. Unless you want to cut glass or something, they're, they're worthless. But you know why they mean? Because they're rare. We value them. They're something we want. They mean something. to. That's what determines value. I mean, listen, if you had a big old bucket of diamonds, I mean, after you gave me my cut, I wouldn't expect you to give anybody anything. Anything. Nothing. You know why? You'd cherish it. And if somebody came to you and said, Ralph, I want to buy them diamonds from you, you'd probably make them pay. We sell our spirituality cheap because it doesn't mean anything to us. It means nothing. I want to give you a final thing. I've said that six times. I mean it. Just a thought in closing. I want to say a word about the consequences for Esau. I want to read just two verses to you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17. The Bible says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. 
For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Listen to this. Tell me this isn't the saddest thing you've ever heard. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. You say, preacher, are you saying if I sin, I can't ask God's forgiveness and he won't forgive me? Oh yeah, I believe that you could do that. I don't know concerning Esau if he was a, a saved man, if we can use that terminology. But I know this, listen carefully, he lost some things that day that he never got back. When we sin, we cause some consequences in our life that we never undo. There's some of you right now, there's things in your life you wish you could erase from your mind, from your memory. There's some of you, some of the decisions you've made in your life, you'd give anything to go back in time. Some of you have wept tears over mistakes that you've made in your life. Weep the ocean full, friend. You can't go back and change it. God may forgive you, and He will forgive you. And I'm thankful He forgives us. But there's a temporal damage that's done that can't be undone. We better be careful how we live our lives. Because we can bring some things about that though we may try, we can never undo. Some things we can't unremember. Some things we can't unsay. Some decisions we can't undo. And every time you sin... You're losing ground that Christ gained for you. Every time we sin, we're causing things. We're losing things in our life. They may not mean anything to us now. It didn't mean anything to Him then. But you know what it says? Afterward, when He would have inherited the blessing. You know, there's coming a day we're going to give an account, Ralph. It may not mean much to us now, but we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, we'll wish we had lived differently. I beg you, I mean, I beg you. I'm not going to use a bunch of preaching words. I'm not going to say I reprove, I, I beseech, or I, I, I beckon. I'm just going to say I beg you this morning. Don't sell your spirituality cheap. Don't sell it at all. Determine that you're going to abstain from the fleshly lust that war against our soul and stay wholly dedicated and consecrated to Jesus Christ.